Hello, and welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To find future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places where podcasts are found. If you'd like to become a contributing member of the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash media. Every little bit counts, and we appreciate all the support we can get. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and today we have on Dr. Michael Lawfer. There isn't a way to introduce Michael that would suffice in capturing how important he and his work are. Michael is the Director of Mathematics at Menlo College and the founder and spokesperson for the 4th D's Vinegar Collective, which is a volunteer network of anarchists and hackers taking on big pharma through the development of open source DIY medicine and technology. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, man. Of course. So you and I met for the first time the other day at my buddy's house. That was when you came in for the um, Transhumanist Conference. Yeah, Body Hacks is a great con. I've I've had a good time with them uh, in a couple of different places. Uh, they put on a good party. Nice. How did the conference go? Yeah, I learned some stuff. It was good to catch up with some old friends. There were sort of the... You know the usual who's who faces there, and people doing interesting new projects. Uh, try out some nutraceuticals and look at body mods and new ways to think about what it means to be human and what it means to be natural or modified, and how you would define that. You know the usual questions that come up in those spaces, which is it's always stimulating to be around people who think deeply about those things. For sure. And you're usually speaking at those. How was it not speaking this time? <laughs> it was such a such a relief. It was amazing because I like I don't I think it's the first time in like three years that I've attended a conference at which I wasn't obligated to speak or didn't have some role as an organizer. Mm-hmm. And it was amazingly relaxing to just be able to be a participant and learn from other people and connect and absorb new ideas, look at what people had and not not be responsible for, you know, dealing with content. So it was it was a good change of pace. It was good for me. I enjoyed it. I should do that more often, I think. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I definitely want to make one of those conferences soon. Um, Unfortunately, have not been able to to this point, but definitely got to make that soon. Well, Um, I'd recommend if you're available in the fall on the 14th of September, the Please Try This at Home conference is happening in Pittsburgh, and it's going to be amazing. It's it's an unconference, so it's totally um, self-organized bunch of really progressive anarchists doing some really interesting things i'll be there a lot of other really fascinating people will be there um and i think i'll actually be releasing some new stuff that hasn't been seen yet so that'll be exciting very cool that does sound exciting and if i'm able to make it i definitely will so let's let's go ahead and move on to to some of the questions i have for you Within the anarchist milieu, there is usually a heavy focus on setting up liberatory alternatives to the coercive status quo. And 
As far as I'm concerned, the Forties Vinegar Collective is a radical and obvious example of one of these sorts of things. And I was hoping you could expand a little bit on what the collective is and also maybe what inspired you to start it. Sure. I mean, I think you sort of touched on some of the ideological principles there. The important thing is to recognize that infrastructure is great when it works. However, when it fails, if there aren't alternatives, that's disastrous. And so there has to be some alternative framework in place. I often argue a rather unpopular position on the role of liberal and radical politics. Mm-hmm. Um, the the liberal side of things often will come down on me as though I were undermining the work that's being done when people are trying to pass laws for accessibility or for universal health care. And on the contrary, I think that those systems should be in place, uh, and they are the sorts of systems that most people are going to employ if they are available. However, in the interim, while that fight is being fought, there needs to be some sort of stopgap. Mm-hmm. And developing systems through which people can take control of their own health, manufacture their own medications and medical technologies, that's something that allows for that. Of course, that's also, to be recognized, not really a long-term solution in its current form. So those changes need to be made on some scale. But again, the question is also one of choice. The other thing that I get hit with the most often is like, oh, isn't this, what if this is, you know, not safe? Uh, What if somebody does this wrong and hurts themselves? Uh, What? And of course, as you point out, the key element is one of choice, one of personal choice. You want people to have alternatives. And if they deem that things are dire enough that they need to take things into their own hands, there should be mechanisms for that. And currently, Outside of the work that we and a few other groups do, there aren't really avenues for most things. And it's really frightening and depressing to think that the medical infrastructure either serves you the way it's designed to, or it fails you and you just sit and wait to die, which is really quite tragic. We don't provide products or services per se. We provide information that allow people to operate independently as they see fit. Um, This is something that's really important because it both offers us a modicum of legal and political immunity because we're not directly involved with what people do. We're merely um, passing along information, which should theoretically be covered by everybody's favorite amendment, but we all know how well that's being eroded of late. That said, we are... Working on a number of projects, um, some of which may go a little bit beyond the mere passing along of information, and we're excited about some of those. The core project that we continue to work on is the Apothecary Microlab, which, again, is an information-based project. We build prototypes in-house, but we don't uh, sell them or distribute them or give out kits. Um, Sometimes I pass things out at my talks, but that's just me personally. That's not really the organization. That's me just doing publicity. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way that this will work once it's at a beta stage is that it's it's an open source automated chemical reactor that someone can build themselves from off the shelf parts. They'll be able to 
go online, download the instructions, which will have links for all of the things that they need to purchase, instructions for how to assemble all of those parts, and code then to program the hardware, and instructions for how to then purchase the precursor chemicals, which are required for doing the chemistry, and programs that you can then run on the hardware so that the active pharmaceutical ingredient you need will be manufactured within the reactor. Um, So that's the core project that we've been working on for some time. The sort of side project that made us a lot of flashy publicity about two years ago was the EpiPencil project, of course, when Mylan was in the limelight and there was this horrific shortage of EpiPens. Uh, We've figured out a way that you could make your own for about $30 and that you could reload for about $3. Still available, and again, that's an information-based project. You can go to our website and download the plans, and it's it's basically just three links on where you can buy the pieces and how to put them together. And ironically, after all of that, Mylan, you know, Heather Bresch, the CEO of Mylan, went in front of Congress and lied, and then... There was this huge outcry because then they recalled over 80,000 EpiPens because they're single use and they were failing. So you don't know if they actually work until you use them, which is disastrous and mm-hmm. something that's life-saving on such a short time scale. And then after that, they couldn't meet demand, even though the price hadn't gone down. And there was huge outcry over that. And after all of this, there's been no shift in the price. They're still... Um, as expensive as they ever were. So that's still out there, and we're we're pleased with that that project worked out well. We're currently working on a project to try to genetically engineer a bacteria that would make people immune to cavities, which is exciting if we can get it to work. Uh, Cavities are an infectious disease. We don't typically think of it as such, but it is mitigated by a bacteria. Mm -hmm. So... It is an infectious disease. Um, The bacteria in question is Streptococcus mutans, and it has evolved in such a way that it can grip the surface of the tooth. Most bacteria can't do that, and that's that's a rather peculiar thing. It excretes lactic acid, which is what breaks down tooth enamel, and then once the tooth is porous, other bacteria can set up shop, and you have all of these secondary effects of comorbidity where you have tooth infections and then vascular infections and you have problems with, uh, it's been linked to Alzheimer's and a number of other things. And of course, dental health problems affect marginalized communities much more, mm-hmm. homeless community, indigent communities of other sorts in general. Um, so it would be really nice to be able to wipe that out as a problem. Yeah. So fluoride, you know, is it, the reason it's it's linked with better dental health is because it's toxic to Streptococcus mutans. I mean, it's toxic in some other ways too, but you know, it can lead to much better tooth health. About 20 years ago, there was a guy who had an idea, and he said, "Well, you know, couldn't we vaccinate against this?" And and they did do some vaccinations. The problem is with the vaccination, you have to get it to somebody before they have it in their system, and you know this bacteria gets into baby's mouths very, very early in life. Mm-hmm. So you have to do it at birth. But they did do a, a cohort test, and it worked very, very well. And why not everyone is inoculated against this is uh, 
sort of a, a realm of uh, conspiracy theory, I guess, because mm-hmm. it's established technology. Um, that said, if you could uh, engineer a bacteria that would wipe out Streptococcus mutans and take its place in the ecosystem and be non-destructive towards people's teeth, you would be able to solve the problem of cavities with people who are of age. So we are yeah. working on that, and we're, we're hoping that, that will work out. So how do, how do you use it? Well, this bacteria, if we manage to produce it, would be a modified version of strep mutans that just didn't produce lactic acid and outcompeted native uh, streptococcus mutans. And so in theory, if you had a Petri dish full of this, you would dip your toothbrush in it, you'd brush your teeth once, and you'd never get a cavity for the rest of your life. That is cool. And the better part of it is that the magic of bacteria is that they multiply. So if I had some of this, I can just make more and send it to you. And then you could make more and send it to everybody you know and, and on and on and on. Like data, it's, once it's out there, it's out there. So we're working on that too. That's pretty sweet. Well, I, I wanted to go back a little bit to the apothecary lab. What are people able to make with that? Well, it is a general purpose reactor. So in theory, people would be able to develop programs to make mm, any small molecule. Um, the small molecules that we've been focusing on have been five or six particular molecules. Um, the first one we did was Daraprim, which is the antiparasitic associated with toxoplasmosis. That was the Martin Shkreli Turing Pharmaceuticals drug that we passed out at, at Hope yeah. 11. And then we've been working on Savaldi, which is the hepatitis C cure, GSK-744, which is a new generation of antiretroviral for HIV, naloxone, which reverses opioid overdose, and mifepristone and misoprostol, which are the abortion drugs. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's that's quite a bit. You mentioned the the HOPE conference. And by the way, I watched that. And I think you may have potentially been doing some illegal things there on stage. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, approximately how many felonies do you think you commit every time you give a speech? Between five and seven, depending on where where I'm <laughs> presenting. Yeah, I mean, I usually have somebody in the audience with my legal team on the speed dial in case something happens. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably just a matter of time before I get yanked, um, and we've we've preparing for that. Of course, that's that's part of any direct action campaign. You you expect to get that sort of response at some juncture. Um, right. I've gone so far as to violate the Atomic Secrets Act in public a couple of times, which is not just a federal felony, but it's a capital felony. So technically, I'm I'm a candidate for the electric chair. So yeah, we gotta we gotta talk about that. I've got I've actually got that note, and I want to go over that with you really quick. But um, <laughs> so what was it, what was it that you did that was illegal? I saw you were making it rain on the audience with some some drugs that would normally cost people a whole lot of money, but you were throwing them at people for free. What were you throwing into the audience? Well, so that was Daraprim. So Martin Shkreli, when he became CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals, had this vision of trying to push the research 
toward antiparasitics. Daraprim is a fairly old drug. I mean, the active ingredient is called pyrimethamine. It does work. It was originally developed as an anti-malarial medication. It's pretty simple, um, but it's also fairly toxic. So the so-called side effects are pretty unpleasant. It does wipe out the parasite, but you know it it's it's hard on your body. So he was looking for things that were going to destroy the parasite without having such nasty effects on the body. So his idea was, well, let's just crank up the price on the drug and funnel that money toward r and d and then see if we can come up with something better. Now, there's a lot of opinion about how ethical his approach was because he took something that was the only drug of its kind and changed the price literally overnight from $13.50 per pill to $750 per pill. Yeah. And that's, of course, in his view, right, anybody who has – medical insurance, it doesn't make any difference because the insurance company is the one that's paying for it. But I don't think he was really quite in touch with how many people are not insured in the United States and how many people were suffering for it, which is part of the reason for the public outcry. So when you take Daraprim, a full course of Daraprim, you take uh, 200 milligrams to start with, and then you take 50 milligrams thereafter. So there's a, you know, 50 milligram pills typically. So I, I packed some 200 milligram pills, which would be the equivalent of the four pills that you would take in the first dose. Mm-hmm. And so $750 times four is 3000. And so each of those pills that I was constructing for a few cents, I mean, less than a quarter, really, were worth $3,000. And I had a bunch that I had sort of pre-made, and I just sort of threw them to the audience, which was fun to do. Yeah. Um, Just to show that it wasn't that big a deal, and it wasn't that hard, and there was really no reason that they had to be that expensive. Right. Yeah, that was was incredible. Truly, (laughs) truly a spectacle. Um, Well, it was fun. It was certainly fun. Yeah, what I love about the work that y'all do is you're empowering individuals directly with technology. You're not, for instance, waiting on politicians to grant reproductive rights to people. You're going out there and giving them abortion pills. I mean, well, the other (laughs) thing that we enjoy so much is that it's more than just going out and giving people pills that they need, but saying, here, you can make these yourselves. You don't even need us as an intermediary. Right. Um, Yeah, you don't. Trying to empower individuals, as you say as directly as possible to say, look, not only do you not need politicians to do something or institutions to take care of you, but even the, you know, rogue anarchists who are handing things out at conferences, you don't even need us. Right. You just, you just need to take the time to be invested in your own health and you can, you can make a lot happen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this, pretty much changes the game. If you if people have easy and safe access to perform abortions on themselves at home, like how could there even be a relevant debate on abortion? Like <laughs> uh it, I mean, it, well, it, I kind it, of wonder why there's a relevant debate at all. If you're a really morally hollow person who really wants to oppress people who have uteruses, I don't think you really have a rhetorical leg to stand on. It's kind of like 
3D printed guns or anything like that? I mean, once you can once you can print them at your home, how is how is the gun debate relevant? It's it's a complete game changer. I mean, and, and doing stuff like this, I could imagine you you might be pissing some people off. And you you touched on it earlier, but are you ever truly afraid for your life? I'm afraid for what might happen if I don't keep doing what I do. Mm-hmm. That's that's the greater fear. Am I in danger? Sure. But the greater danger is if I were to not do the work I'm doing because there are people who are dying as we speak of preventable illnesses. And if we stand by and do nothing, we're complicit. And that's the greater danger. I'm just one guy and the collective is doing a lot of great work. If I'm a casualty in the process, that's, um, that's negligible compared to the fact that every three minutes somebody dies of hepatitis C totally unnecessarily. Right. Three times a minute somebody dies of HIV totally unnecessarily. Ten times a minute or maybe 12 times a minute there are botched abortions that are done totally unnecessarily. Ten times a minute people are overdosing on drugs Again, totally avoidable, all of these things with nothing but pills just because people don't have access, either because of price or legality or lack of infrastructure. And anything I could do to make it so that people have a little more access is entirely worth it. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a target and that's okay. Yeah, well, I mean this uh, unironically. Thank you for your service. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, I, <laughs> doing, doing what I can, it's, it never feels like enough, though. There's always a lot more to be done, and there there's, are so many people who are dying and suffering needlessly. And If we can do anything for that, it's, it's worth it. Definitely. What do you think is at the root of the issues? Like, Why, why are so many people dying unnecessarily? Is, is it intellectual property that's getting in the way? Mostly. I mean, that's a large part of it. Intellectual property law is is abused horrifically worldwide, in the United States especially so. And when you see things that are unavailable because of price, it's only because of the abuse of intellectual property law. So Sovaldi is certainly an example of that. Sovaldi is the hepatitis C cure. You take one pill once a day for 12 weeks, and then hepatitis C is actually eradicated from your system. I mean, this is a really remarkable new technology Definitely. and what the, what's been done to understand how to drain the viral reservoir out of the body so that it can be eradicated completely is, is really quite remarkable. Usually a virus is something that you just have to manage throughout your lifetime, but hepatitis C can actually be wiped out now. The problem is, is that you have to take one of these pills once a day for 12 weeks and the, the pills are a thousand dollars a piece. Um, wow. So if you have $84,000 roughly, then hepatitis C isn't your problem anymore. But if you don't have access to that, then <laughs> you're not going to be quite so lucky. And yeah, yeah, that's why is it that there's only one manufacturer? Well, they, they claim they own that molecule. And that's kind of a strange thing to say, mm-hmm. to own a molecule. But such as it is, that is the problem. And I, that's one of the big ones. Um there are, there are other problems depending on how, you know, which drugs you're looking at and which context you're looking at it. Lack of access to the abortion pills, of course, is a very strange topic 
that one of is mitigated by people who think that abortion is not a natural medical procedure that's extraordinarily basic. I mean, mifepristone and misoprostol are listed by the World Health Organization as essential medicines. So it's pretty widely recognized that that's a very important thing. And it's a life-saving medication when you look at it. Uh, medical abortion is much safer than childbirth, um, statistically speaking. Hmm. And so you know, especially in, in places where childbirth isn't safe, if people have unwanted pregnancies, they'd like to terminate it. It's very important they have access to that sort of medication. But for bizarre ideological reasons, it's stigmatized, especially in the U.S. Uh, and a few other places, but not many. Again, um, when you look at naloxone, access is increasing, but the stigma against people who are drug users is one of the things where it's like, here's something that will save a drug user. And, and oftentimes there's this bizarre, like lack of compassion that people show where they say, Oh, well that person is doing it to themselves. Why should we care about them? Which is really, really a strange, strange line of lack of reasoning. Um, so that's, yeah. So, so sometimes, sometimes it's ideological. A lot of times it's, uh, it's intellectual property based. And then, of course, you know, you, you find things that are just sort of, you know, come out of greed and capitalism. It's, it's rather unfortunate. But uh, right. here we are. I wanted, to, I wanted to see if you could steel man the, the person who is against abortion, steel man their argument. What's the strongest argument to ban abortion and how, how would you respond to it? Well, I think that most arguments are based out of a institutionalized misogyny that's built towards the repression of the mystery of the feminine. I mean, and of course we can go down the, that difficult road. There's, there's so many things that have been leading up to that historically for the past, you know, however many thousand years, the strongest argument, I guess, is when abortion is falsely conflated with infanticide. And I'm not even sure that that's a strong argument. That's just a very clever rhetorical mechanism. Again, it's one of that sort of dodges the issue of bodily autonomy and where the choice lies. There's a strange difficulty where they talk about the what they call the sanctity of life, but you know it only applies when they think it should apply. And the the way that that argument breaks down is when you look at the internal consistency, or I should say, the lack of internal consistency in those people's large frame ideologies. So if we if we assume for a moment that that argument is valid, we say, okay, we're going to say that infanticide and abortion are equivalent and that there's some inherent sacredness in in life, then you have to examine the rest of your ideology and say, okay, well then why is it you are supporting aggressive wars? Why is it that you would support the death penalty? Why is it that you would then not support systems of healthcare and welfare that makes sure that once people are born, they're taken care of, mm-hmm. so they don't die from neglect and illness. 
that I think is the real key there, that if you really are saying life is important and we have to take care of all life, then that has to either apply universally or your your system of logic is not internally consistent and you, you need to cop to that. And, and of course, the, the difficulty with examining that is that that's a... That's a second order argument. You have to look at a bigger picture and you can't just, you know, scream some platitude and and, and break it down. There's there's some complexity there. It's it's a very clever mechanism that a lot of the anti-choice people utilize to sort of appeal to emotion and keep people from looking at the bigger picture. Yeah, like I was saying earlier, and at the end of the day, even if people do not think that people should have access to reproductive liberties or what have you, it, at the end of the day, there's not much they can do through uh, the electoral process or otherwise to to stop those individuals from from taking their own reproductive health into their own hands once they have access to technology that allows them to do that. And, yeah, and the truth is, is that that's a long tradition. Midwives, women have been managing their own reproductive health since time immemorial. There are any number of ways that reproductive cycles have been manipulated by people utilizing uh, food choices, herbs, exercise regimens, technology as we would call it, but just tools uh, forever. We just happen to have one that's chemical now that, that works in a pretty effective way. Yeah, definitely, and, and and allowing people easier access to that is going to is going to continue to push the Overton window in a way that is almost going to I I think is going to make the um, reproductive rights debate almost you know to some extent irrelevant. Um, yeah, I mean you'd you'd never and and again I think it's such an indicator of institutionalized misogyny. You'd never ever ever hear about anybody saying, oh, yeah, I couldn't buy condoms. Yeah. <laughs> but the yeah. thing is, is that that is traditionally a male choice, and so nobody ever interferes with it, right? Right, um, right. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, I look forward to a day when, again, nobody ever interferes with anybody's right to adjust their hormone levels in any way they see fit for whatever reason they think is right. Yeah, so they'll they'll some... like uh, allow you access to Viagra on your through your insurance, but they're not going to allow you access to like reproductive medicine for women through their insurance. You want to know something horrific about Viagra? What's that? Viagra was found. This is just unbelievable, and I, and I only learned this recently, which kind of horrifies me that it took me this long to learn about it. But when when Viagra was originally developed, it was developed as a Uh, medication, I believe, for hypertension. Um, And then it wasn't terribly effective, but they'd spent all this time and money looking into it, so they started looking at other things that it did. And um, ultimately, they found that it did a few other things, including but not limited to facilitating erectile tissue being more easily stimulated. Mm -hmm. Um, However, one of the things that it did very, very effectively was uh, eliminate menstrual cramps. Huh. 
it never got approved for this and it never got marketed as such. There were some clinical trials. They had some side effects, including headache, as I understand it. But it was just sort of shoved aside because, again, there's some institutionalized misogyny. And I'm kind of disgusted when I'm like, oh, yes, because erections are really important. But like having Mm -hmm. horrific pain 12 times a year is like no big deal when it happens to the half of the population that the institutions don't care about. So um, keep that in mind, all of you (laughs) uterus owners. If you're having some issues, you can just filch a little Viagra from somebody who has some and maybe it'll be a little easier. That's interesting. That's good to know. So yeah, I'm glad you're out there allowing, spreading the information about how people can get access to reproductive rights and stuff like that. But I, I wanted there to touch There are a lot on- of off-label sort of uses for medications that are, you know, underreported, unfortunately. That's the one that really gets my blood boiling, but there are a bunch of them. Yeah, yeah definitely. I wanted to pose a challenge to what it is that the Fourth Use Vinegar Collective is doing Mm. Proponents of intellectual property might say that folks who are researching and developing these drugs have an incentive to do so because they know that once they develop it, they can own that information (laughs) protected by the state and then they can make a profit on it. So, and, and, then forth these vinegar collective comes in and piggybacks on that information and allows everyone access to it. So I guess I have a question, two parts is one, what incentive would people have? And I'm no proponent of intellectual property, by the way, I'm just kind of trying to play devil's advocate. If no one had intellectual property protections, what incentive would there be for people to develop medicine? And then also, how do we move beyond simply piggybacking on these medicines that are already being developed and maybe sort of doing our own experimentation and developing our own open source medicine? Yeah, so I mean, I hear that argument um, with some frequency and, and it would be a compelling argument if it were true. Um, uh, that said, it's not, um, (laughs) the thing that's important to look at when people make that argument say, oh, you know, it costs a billion dollars to actually push a drug from inception to the end. Uh, there are a hundred drugs that go in and only one of them usually makes it to market. And of the ones that make it to market, only a few are actually profitable and on down the line. Uh, there there are a number of intermediate things that don't get mentioned that totally <laughs> invalidate this argument. The first of which is that the vast majority, in fact, almost all of the critical medications, the research originates in university labs. And then what happens is that it is then taken over by the private sector that is then purchased So it's not private companies that do the research and development. What they do is they they take the research that comes out and they take the time to push it through the FDA process, which is long and it is expensive, um, which is why they they are that part of that machinery. And the other thing is in that, you know, billion dollar figure, the thing that you have to look at is that most of that goes into marketing. Mm. Um, so yeah, again, you want something to play in the marketplace, you got to push it. And if you're counting that as cost, uh, sure, then yeah, that's what 
developing a drug costs, but that's has nothing to do with the research that goes into it. The mm. research again is done almost exclusively by academics who are developing things for the love of the science. Mm-hmm. And so it's if if we fall into that very base notion that people only do things out of economic interests, that clearly falls down in this case because the people who do do that key research aren't doing it for those reasons at all. They're doing it because they think it's important work to do. And then to address the the second part of your question, um, I I think that I think that you point out something that's really exciting and fascinating, and that's not discussed enough. The idea that because biotechnology, pharmaceutical technology, medical technology, technology in general is now becoming more available to people who would traditionally be considered hobbyists or amateurs, that there is the distinct possibility that the next big thing to be a treatment or a cure for some major disease is going to come out of somebody's kitchen or somebody's garage and and not out of MIT or Harvard mm-hmm. or you know the Aaron Diamond Center. Those those big monolithic institutions do a lot of great work because traditionally the technologies that are used to develop these sorts of things are very expensive and exclusive and they they just aren't accessible to mm. people no matter how clever those people are so now to think about the fact that especially in biotech to think about the fact that so many technologies are now available to people on a private basis or by joining a local biohacking space or a normal hacking space and to see some of the things that have been developed is is so exciting and i mean a classic example of that is the you know the 3d printed prostheses that are are now available. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so inspiring, especially in pediatric cases. The the saddest thing about young children who need a prosthesis of one sort or another is that they traditionally were extraordinarily expensive and that they grow out of them. Mm-hmm. And now the idea that you can go and 3D print a custom prosthetic or you know, a bunch of them in very little time for very little money and you can make yourself a Mega Man armor or, you know, whatever you want uh, is is so cool. And so I think more and more of that is going to come to light. And I think that more and more people are going to start doing it, you know, and and to take the the tech up, uh, up a notch, the wonderful coalition that's developing amongst diabetics to develop technology for them uh, that is just taking off in the coolest way. And the people who are building their own insulin pumps and hacking their own insulin pumps so that they work better, it's just wonderfully inspiring to see these people doing stuff. And the Open Insulin Project is doing great work right over in the East Bay. I I just have all the respect in the world for them. And they're working so hard and they're doing such great work. And you know, more and more, I think we're going to see that sort of stuff coming to light. And people are going to bring their unrecognized talent to bear on these these really really important problems just just everything that you see malaria dysentery um yeah and and it's it's going to be exciting to see what what shows up soon cuz i think i think i think 
the most exciting part is that the next thing is going to be so different from what we could even begin to predict. Mm-hmm. All of the futurists in the world can throw in great ideas, but I think things are going to show up that we never would have expected. And I'm excited to see what those are. Hell yeah, me too. What do you, what do you think needs to happen to move the biohacking scene to the next level? Um, I think that there needs to be a social shift where people are less afraid to participate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if there can be a social movement away from the current anti-intellectualism, I think if people are less afraid of science, I think the more and more that um, biohacking spaces get built up, the more that there's some recognition that you don't need to have advanced degrees to participate, that you just need some thoughtfulness, that you know science isn't scary, that science is something that everybody should do all the time. I think that's the big thing. I think it's it's not a matter of anything except getting people excited and not scared and say, you know, jump in, try something. I, I recently spoke at UCLA and and I, I had a similar question from one of the really bright students there. And, and I said, you know, the, the best thing that can happen is when people invite the newbies in, in the most inclusive way possible, when you can say, yeah, yes, here's, here's a piece of equipment and go nuts. You want to yeah. try something? Here's some stuff to try. You need some help? Let me know. And I think that the OG hacker movement in certain circles has given really good role modeling for that sort of thing of saying, yeah, you know, here's a computer. Try something. Watch it break down. Watch it fail. And start over and try it again. And I think we need to see that in, in every science. I think we need to see it in in mathematics and physics and chemistry and everything. Um, and the more we see that, the more we're going to see the field develop and the more we're going to see innovation from places where it wasn't expected. What do you think healthcare would look like in an ideal world? Everybody would get everything they need immediately. <laughs> yeah. And do you think that, that would, they would get that? I, I, it seems to me that you're sort of uh, someone who focuses on being able to be self-sufficient in some ways. So do you think it's it's a matter of just empowering people to be able to create their own medicine and stuff like that? I think that there's um, there's sort of an inversion of the current model of healthcare. And, and, and in general, again, I think this goes back to what we were just discussing about culture and mentality playing such a huge role. The, the current model for most things, everything from healthcare to automobile maintenance, is this outsourcing of responsibility. Don't think about how it works. It's not your problem. Go consult an expert. Pay them. Don't talk with them about what's going on. Just trust that they know what to do and then do what they say. This is terrible. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're, you're volunteer, voluntarily conceding all control. Why this is the predominant model for so many things is just beyond me. I think that the, the real shift needs to be that we all understand that like 
you know, you inhabit a body and it's a machine and it works in very specific ways, most of which are fairly predictable, most of which can be managed with diet and exercise and, you know, good sleep and a few other really basic things. You know, um, a biohacker friend of mine at one point said, yeah, the original, the original transhumanist biohack, eat some protein, take a walk, hydrate, have a nap. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not as complicated as we'd like to think with all of our like, oh, let's, let's drink ketone ester and, you know, do intermittent fasting and, and eat a bunch of nootropics and make sure our omega threes are in balance. I mean, like, you know, the body takes pretty good care of itself if you let it. Um, so to have a little bit of understanding of basic health structure, to be invested in your own health, to take care of things you know, from a maintenance perspective rather than a wait till it's a disaster and then try and do damage control perspective. And I think with that, the majority of health problems would kind of evaporate. And then, of course, you know, that doesn't take care of everything. So then there would be a tiered system where it's like, okay, if you can't handle something on your own, then maybe you, you know, ask some people who might know a little bit more about it and work with them on a consulting basis rather than saying, oh, my body's broken, fix it so I can go do other things and continue to abuse my body, but rather say, what's going on here? Help me understand things better. How do we manage this? Um, allow me to learn and become, again, invested in my health and understand what's wrong so that it can be managed properly. And, you know, and then if, if, if it gets to the point where something has a incredible degree of sophistication and specialization that's required, then sure, okay, yeah, it, it makes sense that you shouldn't be probably doing neurosurgery at home. But there should be a sort of tiered system of trying to manage things independently as much as possible. Um, and I think that that would, that would be much closer to an ideal. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, as long as you leave the option open for lazy people like me who enjoy pleasure and luxury <laughs> to, to outsource my mechanic, my mechanical problems on my car, then I'm I'm totally fine with that. Well, sure, I wouldn't. So I wouldn't. Um, I, I wouldn't discount it as a possibility. The the trade off there has to be acknowledged. I think is the key, mm -hmm. right? So if somebody has the acknowledgement of saying, "Look, I have more money than time." And I'm not going to learn about how to change my oil, even though it's a very simple process. I'm going to go in and have it done, and hopefully whoever does it does a competent job and doesn't break my car, then then fine. That that acknowledgement of saying, like, yes, okay, I'm, I'm overprivileged and I don't have to deal with this problem because I can pay <laughs> for it, that's cool. But again, with that acknowledgement of saying, I am offloading this decision-making responsibility. And so if I go in and change my oil and the guy I pay puts in the wrong stuff or drops something in and breaks something, then like understanding that it's like, yeah, that you probably could have done that a lot better if you did it yourself, but you decided that it wasn't your problem. And again, th there's this one critical differentiation between, you know, health and automobile servicing, which is you can buy a new car if it breaks. Yeah. Um, which is awesome, 
But such as it is, despite what all the futurists have been claiming is right around the corner since the 60s, we can't transplant our consciousness into something new or something inert yet. Um, So until that nut is cracked, uh, we have this this meat sack that we have to take care of if we want to continue um, having our consciousness interface with the physical world. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's the fine print on that. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I don't know if you've convinced me that I'm going to learn mechanics, but, uh, I get, <laughs> I get what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. But, uh, yeah, you're right. We have not reached a transhumanist utopia yet, but what are your thoughts on transhumanism in general or uh, anarcho-transhumanism specifically? Well, I don't differentiate between therapeutics and enhancements. I really don't see any way to differentiate between something that makes you better when you're sick and something that makes you better when you're not sick. And, you know, we all utilize enhancements every day. You know, you eat a protein-rich meal, and it gives you long-lasting energy. You eat a carb-heavy meal, and it gives you a, a burst of short-term energy. You drink a cup of coffee. I mean, or maybe just you time the way you eat so that you have energy during the day. I don't see any differentiation. You know, you take an aspirin when you have a headache. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was a, there was a, a comedian at one point who showed a video where somebody was analyzing Lance Armstrong's oxygen absorption, mm-hmm. that he was able to process so much more oxygen than a normal person. And this was, of course, done previous to the doping so-called scandal. And the comedian said, you know, why aren't we all doping? And everybody laughed because this was a joke, but I, I think this is a valid question. Yeah. Um, why shouldn't we all be using every technology <laughs> that's available to enhance our human experience? Yeah. And the thing that's often thought of is like, well, many of these things have trade-offs. Well, okay, mm, fine. If you recognize those trade-offs, there's nothing wrong with that. If there's something that's going to make you be able to focus better so that you can work on the things that are important to you, why would you not do that? If you have something that's going to make it so that you can utilize your body in ways that are going to make you enjoy life more, why would you not do that? If there are health trade-offs that are you know, short-term gains, long-term losses, those are things you need to take into account very seriously. But once you've done that accounting, that's your decision to make. And how would you like to optimize your life? I, for one, have no intention of tiptoeing through life just to arrive safely at death. Although I know that that strategy is a popular one, especially in the United States. But I, you know, I very much am one for trying to optimize the life in your years and not necessarily the years in your life. That said, longevity seems like a cool thing if you can make it work. So so in terms of the idea of transhumanism, I think that being human is to be transhuman because you're you're always trying to make your life as good as it can be. It's one of the most basic and natural things. Yeah, you can't see you get glasses. <laughs> yeah, right? And nobody would ever say, "Oh, that's unnatural. You shouldn't have those." I mean, nobody has ever said that. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think, <laughs> but like, you know, and, and so to the same thing, when, when, when somebody looks at a bodybuilder and says, oh, they're using steroids, I'm like, well, yeah, 
<laughs> of course they are. They're, They're a bodybuilder. Body <laughs> That's what allows them to do that in part. Somebody says, well, then anybody could do that. And then I, you know, then I say, you clearly never understood how bodybuilders work. <laughs> Those people eat every two hours. They work out all day, every day. You couldn't do that. You know, and that's the interesting thing. Steroids don't make you stronger. Steroids decrease your recovery period. Mm-hmm. Um, not, most people don't have the discipline to work out all day, every day. Steroids just allow for things to move beyond a certain plateau. And, and of, of course, I think that there shouldn't be any restrictions in performance enhancing drugs in sports ever. And I come at this from, you know, both a medical and ideological standpoint that athletes are already really, really abused so that they can perform these superhuman tasks. You know, why not allow them to utilize any technology they can get their hands on? It's very simple. And people say, oh, that's cheating. Level playing field. Well, be very careful if you're trying to make that argument because you're going down a eugenics road if you do that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't, I don't really think it's all that difficult either. Like, you could separate the leagues too. Like, if you want to have your Luddite league where no one dopes up or they do it secretly. <laughs> oh, I'm calling it that from now on. <laughs> then, then, have your, oh. then, <laughs> then have your Luddite league. But, you know, over here, we're fucking transhumanists and we're going to dope the fuck up and <laughs> go way faster than y'all. So. Oh, I'm I'm gonna forever call the World Anti Doping Agency the Luddite League. Oh, that's <laughs> wonderful. Thank you for that turn of phrase. Yeah, I like that. Of course, a lot of people would say that these ideas we're talking about are pretty radical. I think I've heard you say before that you were raised by activists. Is that true? To a certain extent, uh, yeah, I, I I would say that's true. Yes, my my parents were both activists in in very different ways. My father was very public about his activism in a certain way. He was a uh, radio personality um, throughout the '60s. He drew a lot of attention to things using the the Freedom of Information Act to demand his files from the draft board. Um, oh, wow. My mother was a little more uh, direct activist, marched a lot, signed a lot of petitions, did that sort of work. So yeah, there is something quasi-hereditary about it. I was raised in a progressive environment where the idea of morality and legality not always being aligned was revealed to me at a fairly young age. And uh, trying to wrestle with those difficult questions of what is the right thing to do and how do you help people was something with which I was raised as well. And and yeah, I'm I'm very grateful for that. And of course, then, you know, my own studies and learning about things developed an ideology that was somewhat more radical. But yeah, my parents are supportive uh, still. Good. <laughs> Which is nice. Yeah. That is nice. I, I, yeah, I'm, I could see how that upbringing could help you move into an anarchist direction for sure. By the way, do you have like any sort of specific adjective that you like to attach to your, to your uh, anarcho? Yeah, uh, I, I usually say anti-establishment anarchist or uh, anti-institutional yeah. uh, anarchist. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the institutionalization of things is usually where things go south. And yeah, I mean, and, and that's a long, uh, a long rabbit hole to fall down. But yes, uh, roughly speaking, uh, anti-institutional or anti-establishment anarchist is, is usually what I identify as personally. Yeah. 
Yeah, I could see you fitting in a, a few different boxes. I mean, clearly some of the some of the stuff that you're doing could arguably insurrectionary, transhumanist even. Well, I wouldn't reject any of those, certainly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I have a rather inclusive set of tactics. I was I was at the Institute for Society and Genetics in UCLA and they said, you know, you're doing this very pointedly, you're utilizing science in this particular way. It doesn't seem like you're just trying to get this done however. And I said, oh, oh, very much on the contrary. Um, I'd like people to have access to medicine and I don't really care how it gets done. My background is in science, so that's the tool that I reached for. If if I had had a background in political science, I would have tried to move things politically. If I'd had a background in economics, I would have tried to adjust the market or any number of other intermediate things, uh, such as it is. It's, it's, uh, science is just the tool that I understand. Yeah. Best. Yeah. One one of the things that you also gave people access to is um, math that allows people to manufacture their own nuclear weapons. Am I right? Well, you know, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> what's the yeah. What's the point of that? Yeah. Well, that was. Uh, I do that to to prove a point. Um, it's not so far that I I think that. You know, nuclear technology is that important to spread around. I think that it's just absurd that information is controlled. And I think that the control of information is far more dangerous than the spread of information. Mm. Um, people often argue, oh, oh, this should be restricted, that should be restricted. And as soon as you start restricting things, that's when things go south. It's really poorly understood in the discourse. So the connection to when I violated the Atomic Secrets Act on stage by showing the calculation that allows for the calculating the critical mass for plutonium, the predecessor to that was trying to tear down the argument that to give people the necessary information to manufacture medications is dangerous. Really, the opposite is true. There was a very famous case of a bunch of drug addicts in California, not far from where I am right now, who developed Parkinson's-like symptoms overnight, basically. And it was very odd, and nobody could figure out what was happening. And there was some incredible sort of detective work that was done by a couple of very concerned doctors, and they managed to trace it back to a batch of synthetic opiate that oh, had been wow. manufactured incorrectly. And the interesting thing about this is that when they finally sort of traced things back, they went to the public library where the guy who had done the mistaken manufacture had gone to do his research. And there were pages cut out of the journal article that would have given the information that he needed. Uh, this was done in an attempt to censor that information so that people wouldn't manufacture drugs. And key pieces of information were taken out that if this man had had, he would have manufactured high-quality drugs. And instead, he manufactured something that was extraordinarily toxic mm -hmm. and really damaged a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so... Again, it is the it is the shrouding and the censoring and the withholding of information that ultimately gets people hurt and killed. And I think the exact same thing is true on every level. And so to make this point, my my background is in is in math and physics. And so I I used the neutron transport equation and threw it up on a screen and showed this calculation that you can do that 
makes you you know, liable for the uh, the electric chair in the United States, which, again, I find entirely preposterous mm. that uncovering uh, a fundamental fact about how matter behaves in the universe is somehow a national secret is just the most ridiculous thing. Mm. I understand the desire to try and keep people safe, but I don't think that does that at all. Um, and so to sort of show how ridiculous it was, I said, hey, look, I'm doing some math, and this is a federal capital felony. So, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I hear what you're, what you're saying, and I, and I think I've heard you say before that just to also, I guess, to reiterate what you, you were saying earlier, like with, withholding information from people based on arbitrary things such as political differences can create unintended consequences and class stratifications that lead to censorship and a host of uh, other problematic things. And but, but how would you respond to, say, a fascist who could potentially get their hands on nuclear weapons and enact genocide? Well, I... I think that there's, you know, there's some antecedent issues there. <laughs> I mean, certainly we want people to be safe from being attacked. We need to ask some really fundamental questions about what is it in our society that would cause somebody to want to enact a genocide. I mean, that's mm. that I think is is much more critical. And I, I think I think it it parallels a lot of the things that come out of the firearms debate that I. I, I think you've been a big part of when you, you say, oh, you know, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, these 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 guns are a horrible problem. And it's like, well, I mean, all right, well, we can talk about that. But the fact that those discussions come up only after there are these horrific shootings, we need to ask ourselves, why are there people who want to enact this violence to begin with? Yeah. And in, and in the same way, if you're talking about firearms safety, to take all books about gunsmithing and, and censor them would be a horrible error. That's going to cause a bunch of people to try and make their own guns, do it poorly, and blow things up and, and have horrible accidents. And instead you say, look, you know, a firearm is a tool. It can be misused let's figure out ways to have it so that they're not misused mm -hmm. you know and and you can go all the way down the line with any tool i mean more people die in the united states every year in car accidents yeah than died on the american side in the whole of the vietnam war we don't control those certainly mm. i mean that's a tool it's a useful tool is it used recklessly all the time are there ways that we should probably be trying to mitigate that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Is it being done well enough? Certainly not. Are there any number of ways we should be doing this across the board? And yeah, I mean, nuclear technology is is something to approach with a great deal of respect. And if it were something that we could just say, look, we understand this stuff is it's important and it's scary and we should we should take a good look at it. But that's not a reason to control the information that surrounds it. I mean, you might even be able to make an argument to say, okay, look, you know, weapons-grade plutonium shouldn't be available at Walmart. However, that separate, I see absolutely no reason why the conceptual technology, um, the information, the ideas behind it should be shrouded. That again, strikes me as ridiculous. I, I very much come from that 
old school hacker perspective of all information is good information. All information should be available to anybody who wants to use it. Yeah, my my only hesitation with um, nuclear weapons is, or or something that I I've encountered before is that with firearms, it's you're able to use those sort of proportionally in defense, and with nuclear weapons, it's hard to imagine a situation where you'd be able to sort of, in an ethical way, respond to a threat in a proportional way. I guess unless you were also looking at the threat of nuclear annihilation or something. Well, even so, this is the thing. I mean, I know a little bit about nuclear engineering, and the truth is is that it's a highly non-trivial matter to construct something like that. And if somebody were to develop everything necessary to actually build something that sophisticated, I'd like to think that they wouldn't just use it recklessly. But even so, all of the antecedent technologies are extraordinarily controlled. So it's like, you're going to be able to refine fissionable materials? Mm -hmm. That's a really non-trivial task. The thing that I would defend really strongly is like, everybody should be able to read about that in a book. There's, There's no reason to control that information or that understanding. People should be able to learn about that. Again, you might be able to make arguments to say, okay, well, we, we shouldn't have access to the things that all allow for enacting that. Okay, um, maybe. But again, that's a separate argument. My main argument is the access to information. I don't think that there's anything that would ever justify access shrouding to any information. Um, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Have you ever thought, though, that maybe you... <laughs> Maybe you're just significantly less risk adverse than the average person. Um, For instance, I have insider knowledge that you participated in caged electrified knife fights before. Uh, uh, Yeah, yeah, that that is true. (laughs) How in the world did you end up in a cage fighting other people with electrified knives? Well, I mean, (laughs) it's a it's a really good time if you haven't tried it. there's a there's a particular event uh, within the rather hardcore biohacker community um, that happens once a year, and it's out in the desert. And we take these these plastic training knives, and then you sort of build a a, a supercharged stun gun into the handle, and then put wire along the edge. So you know you get a couple tens of millions of volts through you if if the thing touches you, and then you know. <laughs> set up a little electric fence in a, in a little box and then you, you know, you go at it. It's, you know, it's, it's a good time. It's, it's, um, it's, it's just like, it's like boxing except, you know, way more fun. Um, so, I mean, so sure. Yes. I know that I personally have a different risk profile than most people, but, but again, I, uh, coming back to the ideological piece of, of how this all plays out, I think that that individualized choice is the key element here. Uh, people should have the capacity to make their own choice about how they're going to interface with the world in terms of their intellectual pursuits, in terms of how they utilize their body and and I think that that's that's important thing that is not sufficiently respected and I think that when you get down to bedrock that there are essentially two camps and camp A is well 
we need to trust people to make their own decisions about their health and safety and understand that those decisions might be things that others see as bad but need to be respected. Or there are the little people who are too dumb to think for themselves and we need to keep them under control because it's not safe. Mm. And I think that the latter view is morally abhorrent. Yeah. uh, There you have it. Uh, I just have one follow-up question for the knife fighting thing. In the league that you participated in, were y'all doping or was it one that was (laughs) drug-free? How would I know? (laughs) Uh, I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I personally did not, I don't, I mean, I don't think I had anything that would have given me an edge in my system, um, (laughs) per se, but like, but again, how do you even measure that? Did somebody smoke a cigarette beforehand? You know, nicotine does give greater (laughs) mental acuity and sharpens response time and increases fast twitch muscle response. Like, but I mean, amongst our group, I think that, you know, any enhancement would be fair game. Yeah. All right, let's move on a little bit. Towards the end of these, I usually like to do a little lightning round where I say an idea or a person and you have a response maybe a minute or less to that thing. Are you down? Okay, or I mean, we can even do fast. We can just like do free association. We can do one word for each. I mean, if you want. <laughs> well, you can, you can do it as quickly as you'd like, but feel free to take up to a minute if you want. Okay, go ahead. The singularity. Ridiculous. Why? Um, I don't think it's a reality. I think it's the sort of thing that futurists have been saying more or less the same thing for the last 40 years. And it's got this very, the check is in the mail sort of idea. And people who sort of look to the future, you've got people who say, oh, XYZ technology is going to save everything and we're all going to live in this utopian dreamland, which is, you know, nothing but orgies and cocaine. And then you have people like this is going to ruin everything and we're all going to be in this industrial wasteland with nothing and no infrastructure. And nobody says, you know, it might change the flavor of things, but things will probably just continue to medium grade suck indefinitely. Well, damn. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Artificial intelligence. The very exciting thing about artificial intelligence that almost nobody is talking about is the idea of pairing an artificial intelligence with a human operator where the artificial intelligence acts as an enhancement for human intuition rather than a replacement for it. It seems like it's starting to happen in a couple of places, but I think that once people recognize that we're the goal is not to build an independent operator, but something that can remove certain portions of the workload that are very difficult for humans and not to continuously try and program computers to do the things that are very hard for computers. We'll have some very powerful tools on our hands. The transhumanist party. I'm ready to party. What about the transhumanist political party? Oh, well, um, tell them to call me. (laughs) Do you think that there's any hope through the electoral process for transhumanism? I don't think there's a lot of hope within the electoral process. Fair enough. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
Space colonization. Uh, also not very realistic. <laughs> Thinking about the most resource-poor environment possible, it's space. Very, very difficult. That said, I did write an article on squatting in disused space vehicles for the Journal of Anarcho-Transhuman. And I do advocate that, but that's not very far away. That's just, you know, in orbit. But colonizing space, um, I think some of it will happen one day. And again, my excitement surrounds people who do this of their own accord without corporate or government support. And in the piece that I wrote, I, I advocate for that pretty strongly. But I think in the way that people think about it, where it's like, oh, America or Elon Musk will take us to Mars or outside the solar system, I, I, I'd say that's a bet against. What's the craziest project you think you've ever undertaken? Craziest project I ever undertaken? Um... It's uh, it's it's a hard call to say which is the craziest, um, man. <laughs> uh, um, and like and you know how do you how do you qualify one as as more crazy than another? Maybe not the craziest, but one of the top two or three. Okay, so uh, I'm sure that you've read that recently some very sophisticated people working in genetic engineering genetically engineered a group of mosquitoes that would pass on sterility after a few generations and potentially wipe out an entire subspecies of mosquito that um, carry malaria. Um, and they've kept it in this very, very you know, isolated labs so that they could make sure that this idea of a gene drive was viable before, you know, make sure none of them got out into the wild. So without giving too much detail to protect the people involved, that project at one juncture was undertaken in, in a, a, a less secure environment. Now, it was not deployed. That's critical to note, but... It was something that was discussed, and and I think it was one of these interesting things because everybody's like so nervous, like oh, you know, God, what, what, oh, what if it screws something up? Wiping out an entire species is is so dangerous. Even if it did wipe out malaria, like well, you don't know what the repercussions would be. And this one very sophisticated um, hacker woman I was discussing this with at one point said, you know, if uh, mosquitoes were seven feet tall, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Ooh. Uh, it's very true. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> again, that was not um, that was not deployed, but that was pretty crazy. The idea of wiping out an entire species to to wipe out one of the most destructive diseases in the world that was that was a pretty crazy undertaking to think about. Um, didn't happen, but um, that was a pretty crazy project that you were involved with to some extent. Yeah. Um, I, I won't be too specific about that, but yeah, the, there was, I was, I had a non-zero involvement in that project. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's your advice to people who are looking to get involved in some of the things that you're interested in and what are your thoughts generally to encourage young minds? Dive in. Don't 
don't hesitate, don't wait, don't say, well, I need to establish some understanding, some basics. Start with the biggest, baddest, most insane dream that you have. You you want to you have an idea as to how space colonization could actually work? Start doing it. Don't don't go and get an engineering degree first and and you know, learn about how, you know, friction ratios affect steering outcomes and reduce gravity loads or whatever. Just go. Just go. Just start. And you'll very quickly learn all the things that you are missing and you'll be able to fill those in as needed and that will be the optimized learning experience. You want to learn about biotech? Start playing with living things. You want to learn about physics? Start doing physics-y things. You want to learn about math? Start pushing things around. Don't do the traditional model of of the training wheels and then the, you know, the big kid's bike and then, you know, maybe we'll put you on a motorcycle. Like, you know, get yourself a a rocket and strap in and fire it up and just go. Um, that's, that's the best advice I can give. And I think that that's important because that's the, that's the thing that ultimately breaks a lot of people down. They get excited about something and they're ready to go. And then they decide that they're going to take these baby steps and they're spoon fed this institutionalized rhetoric and they lose their passion and they lose their excitement for it. And then they don't end up doing all the great things that they were dreaming of. Cool. Okay. Are you still, by the way, are you still looking for people to help out with the Forthies Vinegar Collective in any way? Absolutely. We're always looking for more people and we have needs that need to be filled. So if there are people, in, and regardless of skill set, so people who are, who are interested in working with us, they can contact us through the website, uh, which is fourthievesvinegar.org. Let us know. And please understand everybody who's ever written in that. If we haven't gotten back to you, it's not that we don't care. We just we get a flood of emails, and it takes a long time to sift through. So um, rest assured, we, we got your email, and we're, we're trying to get back to you all as soon as we can. For anyone who's applying, is there anything specific that you're looking for? Oh, yeah. If, if there's anybody out there who – I mean, we have, we have a, a number of teams – um, so we have uh, a team for the hardware development. We have the team for uh, software development. We have a team that handles the web presence. We have a chemistry team. We have a data science team. And then, of course, we have just you know basic logistics and publicity teams. So uh, anything that anybody wants to do pretty much that's related to the project, if, if they're interested, uh, we could use the help. Where should people go to follow you or to find more about the ideas that you're interested in? Um, me personally, I'm on Twitter. You can also find me at conferences. I do sort of the hacker circuit. I'm usually at DEF CON um, every other year when they run Hope. I go to Hope. Again, the the one conference I'm super excited about is the second Please Try This at Home that's happening on the 14th of September in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and there are a number of others that are around. And, you know, again, the the thing that I think is most important is I think a lot of people are interested and passionate about things, but they hesitate to act on them because they think they aren't qualified for some reason. And just don't. Don't hesitate. If you if there's something that you feel is important, go go fix it. Just go. Just do it. Yeah. Uh, if If you don't do it, nobody's going to. Um, and everybody needs to remember that because a lot of people are tricked into inaction because they think that 
they're not worthy. That is very much false. And I know there's undoubtedly somebody listening to this right now who's has something inside them that needs to get out and, and they're scared to let it out and they need to just go and do it. Whoever you are listening right now, just go, just, you know, turn off this podcast and go do your thing. Oh yeah. (laughs) Are there, are there any thinkers or books or websites or organizations that you'd like to give a shout out to? Oh, that's a really long list. And in terms of good places to look for, um, interesting things to, to read uh, contemporarily, Center for a Stateless Society has a lot of really good content. The periodical Anarcho-Transhuman has some really good content. But uh, as as important as it is to absorb the ideas of others, I think the most important thing is for people to develop their own ideas. It's very it's very seductive to look at developed ideas of others and merely adopt things, but Developing your own ideas is very different than that. In fact, those two things aren't even really related. And I think that's poorly recognized. Not to say don't go out and, you know, <laughs> read some history and understand some some ideas, but uh, make sure to do your own thinking. I think yeah. that's the most important thing. Well, I'm inspired by your the sense of... Um, creativity and independence that you're trying to bring out in people. And I really appreciate you, you focusing on that. Well, thank you. Yeah. I think, I think that that's, that's our only hope. I think that, um, I think that there are, there are solutions to most of the things that we need. We just need to let people let them out of the bag. All right. Well, is there anything that I forgot to ask you that you'd like to touch on before we end the interview? The one thing that I that I don't think is talked about enough is that throughout history there have been critical moments where economics and morality have come to an impasse. We have seen it during the Cold War. We saw it during the Reformation. Um, notably, in the United States, it happened during slavery, and the conversation was one that went something like what is occurring is morally wrong and this this was said by those who were paying attention to what was going on and those who were defending the status quo would respond saying well yes this is rather unfortunate it comes from these historical vestiges and we understand it's certainly not ideal but this is the situation that we have and we can't just pull the rug out from under it or the economy will collapse. So we just have to live with it. And the counter response that came was that's not good enough. If this is the basis for our economy, we need a new economy. And again, referencing slavery in this country, that's the exact conversation that happened. And the interesting thing is I believe that that conversation is happening again now internationally regarding intellectual property. Oftentimes we say this is not right that people can't get the medications that they need to live because people are suggesting that they own this idea. And again, the response comes rather predictably. Yes, this is rather unfortunate. And yes, copyright and patent law come from historical vestiges that are based in medieval 
structures, but this is what we have to work with. And there are trillions of dollars circling the globe based on this idea. So we can't just pull the rug out from under it because this is our economy. And there are some of us who are saying, well, that's not good enough. If this is the basis for the economy, we need a new economy. And I think it's time for that. Hell yeah, man. Thanks so much for, for joining me, Michael. Dr. Michael Laffer, everyone needs to go follow him on Twitter. And what's your handle again? Um, I think it's Michael S. Laufer or Michael Swan Laufer. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thanks so much again. And um, we'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Thanks so much for having me. It was great shooting the shit. All right, Michael. Thanks a lot. We'll see you later. Bye. Big thanks to everyone who tuned in to the fifth episode of the show. I hope everyone enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Michael Laufer. I'd like to give a special shout out to my patrons. Your support is helping us pay the bills and stay alive. You make it possible to keep this thing going. And if anyone else out there finds our content valuable, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash media. And remember, you can check out the rest of our interviews not only on YouTube, but also on Stitcher and SoundCloud. And if you can't afford to help financially, simply liking and sharing our episodes will help us out tremendously. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.